Welcome to episode 156 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Lauren Anderson, who served in the FBI for nearly 29 years. During her career, she worked counterintelligence and counterterrorism cases. In this episode, Lauren reviews the assistance the FBI provided to the Moroccan government directly after the 2003 Casablanca bombings, which resulted in 41 fatalities at five different sites. At the time, she was the legal attaché, Legat, in Paris, where, in addition to France, she directed the FBI's engagement with and operations in Monaco and 22 African nations. After her Legat assignment, Lauren Anderson was appointed to be the Assistant Special Agent in Charge, ASAC, of the International Terrorism Branch of the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force, where she oversaw the disruption of many terrorist plots and the success of many prosecutions. She also served as the interim special agent in charge of the New York Counterterrorism Division and the Intelligence Division. Lauren Anderson and her teams received numerous awards and commendations, including from the Director of National Intelligence, the U.S. Attorney General, the Director of the FBI, and the Federal Executive Board. Today, Lauren Anderson builds upon her geopolitical and international security expertise to work with women leaders and young people throughout the globe and provides commentary for media outlets, including ABC News, MSNBC, Al Jahir, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Fox News. Lauren is an ambassador for Vital Voices and the judge for the XPRIZE Foundation's Women's Safety XPRIZE. There is so much packed into this interview. I know you're going to enjoy it. Before we get to the interview, I just have a few things. The first thing is that my March Reader Team email about the FBI and books, TV, and movies is out. If you haven't seen it in your inbox, please check your spam filter just in case it accidentally ended up there. In this issue, I tell you how you can get some FBI retired case file review buttons and stickers. I have two types, the official FBI retired case file review logo and the new one, eavesdrop on the FBI. Later in the year, I will be offering podcast swag on my website, jerrywilliams.com. But I just want to test it out with my reader team first to make sure I'm not overwhelmed with orders. This past Saturday, I dropped off a whole box load at the post office. For anyone that places an order this week, please know that I'll be away in Florida at PodFest, which is a conference for podcasters. If you're not yet a member of my reader team, all you need to do is go to jerrywilliams.com to sign up. Or if you're listening on a podcast app that supports links, 
You can sign up right in the description of this episode. When you join my reader team, you'll get access to my FBI reality checklist, which is 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV, and movies. And you'll also get the FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs written by the very agents who have been on this podcast. I have more than 50 books there. Of course, my books are there too. I'll talk to you a little bit more after the interview, but for now, here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Lauren Anderson. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing great. I have to admit, I feel like I've been stalking you. (laughs) (laughs) Because since we uh, started talking to each other about doing this podcast, I have taken the time to read lots of articles about this case and the different roles that you played in the FBI. I am so impressed and so honored to have you here on the podcast. No, thank you. It's actually an honor to be here. And I love what you're doing with this series, bringing the FBI to everyone in the world. Yeah, thank you. Your FBI career has been marked by so many firsts, including you being one of the first women on the FBI SWAT team. And I hope that we'll have a chance to get to all of that at the end. But we're going to start out with a case review, if you don't mind. That's great. And the case that we decided that you would talk about, there are so many that you could talk about, but the one that we decided that we would talk about today is the Casablanca bombings in 2003. But before you start telling us about that incident, could you set it up first? What's happening in the world? Because this is, you know, a couple of years after 9-11. What's happening with you? Where are you assigned? Could you do that first? And then we'll talk about the, uh, the actual case. Absolutely. And thanks for the question, because while the case is interesting, I think understanding it in the context of what was happening at that point in time really lends another key piece to this. So I was the legal attache in Paris, France at that time. I had two ALATs, two office assistants, but because of the volume of work, a steady stream of TV wires. And Legat Paris at that point in time had 24 countries in terms of responsibility. France, Monaco and 22 Francophone countries in Africa. So our territory went from North Africa all the way down to the two Congos, Rwanda and Burundi. It was a huge territory. And what we found when I got out there, which was the end of 2001, is that the volume of cases as a result of 9-11 and the volume of leads was extraordinarily, I, I, I kid you not when I say that virtually every terrorist plot or attack had some nexus to either France or one of the other countries in our territory. So just by way of reference, for those who do know the FBI, with a legal attache office, you may have some of your own cases, but largely you're handling leads for others. And we literally maintained a level of about 1,000 pending leads over quite a few years, which is why we had a steady stream of TD wires. It just was an extraordinary time. There was no time to breathe. We were working constantly and beyond the volume of work, I was particularly concerned for the well-being of everybody in the office because that kind of a pace and working that many hours a day is crushing, as a lot of agents know who've been in that situation. One of the other things I loved about being the legat is, yes, I was running the office, but because there was so much work, I got to be a case agent again. And anybody who's moved up in management 
in the FBI knows that I think if you're if you're good at what you do, you miss being a case agent so much. And Paris gave me the opportunity to get my hands back into cases in a different way uh, than I had been able to be do prior to that. Do you speak any foreign languages? I do. Uh, I studied German for seven years in school, middle high, uh, junior high, high school and college. Um, and I learned French when I was selected for Liga at Paris. I had to learn French and I was in some respects challenged and other respects lucky because it was three weeks before 9-11. I was intended to go to language training either with State Department or CIA, but that was not possible with all that was happening uh, because I had a piece of the investigation at WFO at the Washington field office. And so for only the second time at that point in time, the FBI allowed me to study out of the country. So they did not cut my orders and they enrolled me in a school in Paris. And I went to school five days a week, seven hours a day to learn French for my first several months uh, in the country. And so I became fluent in French and I know a handful of other words and Berber dialects and a handful of words in Arabic, but I am not capable of speaking those languages. I can speak in the French, English, and German. So would you like to move on to uh, yeah, Morocco? Yeah, I think we're ready. I went to Morocco for the first time in May of 2002. Ambassador Margaret Tutwiler was running the embassy at that point in time. She was a political appointee, a very, very long history of government and presidential appointment service going back to the Reagan administration. So highly well thought of, extremely well connected. And when we met for the first time, she, she's a tough cookie. She's from Alabama. I'm not even going to attempt to uh, talk about her accent. But she laid down the law to me. And she had had some issues with some other FBI agents that had been covering the territory prior to me. And she laid it out and said, I, she, I expect you to coordinate with people. I expect you to keep me informed. And I let her run. And I said, okay. And now let me tell you about me. I will always keep you informed. You know, we just kind of went on from there. So we started after a, a bit of a shaky start to get a good foundation laid in terms of our relationship. So now fast forward into 2003 as we're leading up to May when the attacks happen. Keep in mind what else is going on. March 1st of 2003, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is captured in Pakistan. On March 20th of 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq. And that was in play. And in roughly in about April, uh, President Bush asked Ambassador Tutwiler to leave Morocco temporarily and go to Iraq and work handling all communications for the provisional structure that was set up under Major Jay Garner. This was right before Paul Bremer arrived. So this is where we are. I'm at this point in time, along with the other two ALATs, really concerned for our liaison, liaison relationships because we had enormous goodwill after 9-11. And when the U.S. invaded Iraq, uh, I think as everyone will recognize this listening to this, there was a lot of countries opposed to what we did. And we were particularly concerned that our liaison relationships and our ability to share information remain at the level that it was. And fortunately, that was the case. Another thing to keep in mind, this was prior to the creation of the terrorist screening center. It was prior to no-fly. At this point in time, the only thing that had been established, and it was two weeks before the attacks, was uh, what we referred to as TTIC, the Terrorist Threat Integration Center. So that's what's going on in the world. Then we come to Morocco. 
Can I ask you? Can I ask you a Please. question before we move on? Please, if, if you could tell us the territories that were covered under Ligue at Paris. Sure. Okay. So, um, as I think I mentioned, so we were headquartered at the American Embassy in Paris. So we had responsibility for everything touching France, everything um, in the Principality of Monaco, which is a tiny little place like Las Vegas on the water. But it really has a lot going on because of money laundering and Russian organized crime. And then within Africa, we had 22 countries. So it included uh, the, all French-speaking countries. So what is referred to as the Maghreb, which is Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, then all through the Sahel region in West Africa, uh, Mali, Niger, Chad, Mauritania, Central African Republic, Ivory Coast, Benin, so on and so forth. And then on the lower portion, the southern portion of the territory we had were the Republic of Congo, the capital is Brazzaville, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Kinshasa, as well as Rwanda and Burundi. And that's below the equator. So think of that in terms of volume as well as sheer distance of trying to get there. And you can appreciate uh, some of the challenges that we faced in trying to work in all of that area with three agents. Is that the case now? No. Or, okay. Okay. I didn't, I didn't think so. Yeah. So I, that's, what, <laughs> that's why I was a little confused. I guess they saw, well, that's not, <laughs> that's not really doable, even though you did it. And, well, and now they've changed it. Well, I changed it with help. Um, one of the f things that I did early on was talk to Director Mueller. There's a little sidetrack here. And, you know, he said, oh, everybody complains about the size of their territory. And I said, oh, I'm going to prove it. And the two ALATs and I literally put an entire proposal together, talked to every embassy, every constituent embassy, every host country service. And we put together a plan and said, this is how we recommend that the FBI realign coverage that Paris currently has and recommended opening in Rabat, Al Algiers and Dakar, Senegal, and ultimately the director agreed to that and all three of those offices were opened and the rest of the countries realigned. So today, Paris covers France and Monaco. That's it. You had your work cut out for you. Oh, we all did. We all did. So I had been in the country in Morocco for about uh, nine days at that point in time. The prior week, there had been a conference and it was for the first Mediterranean Academy of Forensic Science, and Morocco was hosting it. And they invited not just law enforcement, but anybody in the sciences and in forensics from all of the countries around the Mediterranean to meet together in Marrakesh. And we had an FBI agent who was doing profiling, uh, Mark Farrakh, who was going to go down and give a presentation on profiling. And so I thought, great opportunity for me to meet more people. I called the man who was running the conference, who was the sole forensic physician and medical examiner for the country at that point in time and introduced myself and invited myself. And he said, we'd love to have you. So I was in Marrakesh uh, for this conference. Great opportunity to get to know other people and spend more time with some of my counterparts that I had met up until that point in time in Morocco. And just to give you an idea of the Moroccan way of doing things, the individual, and I'm keeping his name out of this intentionally because I don't I don't want to put a lot of attention on him without his permission, and I've been unable to reach him. So in any event, this doctor invited me to his home at one point to meet his children and share a meal with his family, which I thought was a little odd, but it's quite common there. And he kept all three of his children home from school, and his wife postponed schedule surgery to host me at their house. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what the Moroccans are like. So I left Marrakesh for Rabat. 
after the conference with a lot of new friends, some wonderful relationships, and went back to Rabat to do engage in normal liaison activity with all the different services, the police, the internal security service, the external security service. And the night before I was due to leave, it was a Friday, May 16th, and I was sitting in my uh, hotel room. It was at Hilton at the time next to a, a large park that all the Moroccans exercised in every morning that lived in the city. And I got a phone call from the RSO, the regional security officer, and he said to me, Lauren, I need you to know that there's just been a series of attacks in Casablanca. He said, I think they're suicide bombings, but we don't really know. We're trying to account for all of the Americans at this point in time. And I wanted to let you know in case there's something you want to start doing about this. So I was shocked and I said, what else do you know? And he said, that's basically it. We have no idea who the victims are. We have no idea if we have American victims. And I said, okay. And I said, I'll be back in touch with you and hung up the phone. This is about 10 o'clock at night. And this was just a pure coincidence that you were in country at the time. Absolutely a coincidence. And wow, what kind of went through my head, you know, is I've been a part of and responded to crises for many years, even up at that point in time. And until that day, I had a team of people that I could count on. And now I had myself and nobody else at that point in time. So... I sat there for a minute, just kind of absorbing everything that happened. And as much as I knew, and my mind and emotions were running rapid fire from amazement to horror, to pride, knowing that we could help, to fear, and then that realization that you're it, kid. So the first thing I did, which was breaking FBI protocol, was I made a call directly into the Assistant Director of Counterterrorism, who at that time was Larry Mefford. And also keep in mind, this is prior to cell phones having cameras, encryption, and I had to make this call on an open cell phone line and do the best that I could. And Larry Medford couldn't have been better. I explained to him what I knew. He said, what do you need? What do you want? And I said, I would like your authorization to offer all of the resources that the FBI has to the Moroccans. I said, I don't know what they're going to ask for, but can you give me that authority? And he said, absolutely. He said, whatever you need. He said, we'll start getting a team together. We'll get the G5 up and out of here, hopefully by tomorrow, and we'll stay in touch. And he said, you know, Art Cummings, who was the section chief at the time, he said, keep working through this with Art. So that's what we did. And I, as I say, I broke my own chain of command there. Instead of going back to international operations, I thought that would, with due respect to all the people working there, thought it was a waste of time under the circumstances because they just have to go to Larry. So I went right to Larry. Did you get any flack for doing that? Uh, no, not okay. really. Okay. Honestly, at that point in time, I didn't care, but uh, not really. Everybody was really supportive. So I called my Moroccan counterpart at that time and expressed my sympathies about what had happened and said to him, I have gotten the authorization to offer you all of the resources of the FBI. You just need to tell me what you want. All of it's available. Investigators explosives experts, fingerprint experts, chemical experts, you just tell me. And he was very appreciative. And he said, let me check and I'll call you back. And then my final question to him at that point was, when would you be willing to let me come down to Casablanca? And he said, I'll check on that and get back to you. So I said, fine. And I sat there and waited. And then I got a phone call back and he said, okay, we would love to have help from the FBI. We would like 
chemical experts, explosives experts, probably some fingerprint experts, but no investigators. And I said, are you sure? And they said, no, no investigators, but we need that other help. And I said, okay, great. I'll pass that on right now. I said, they've told me they expect to be able to launch the team by tomorrow, Saturday afternoon. And he said, can't they leave any earlier? I said, I'm doing my best and they're doing their best to scramble and they are set to go as soon as they get it together. He said, okay, great. And you can come to Casablanca now. And I said, now? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. And I looked at my watch. It was 1.30 in the morning. So I promptly got on the phone to the RSO and to the chief of station. And they said, the Moroccans have agreed to brief us right now. We've got to get down to Casablanca. So they came to pick me up at the hotel. And once I hit the lobby, I could already see things had changed. There was uh, security all over the place, much in excess of what was typically there. An embassy um, SUV and driver were there. Doug was there. Uh, the chief of station, who, again, I'm not going to name, was there. The chief of the station was livid. He was sitting there in silent fury. I knew he was angry because in his mind, he should have made this call to go down there, not me. And so I said to him, look, it, I know you're angry, but at this point in time, this is a potential FBI jurisdiction case. We don't know if we have American victims. I made sure that you were included from the beginning. So we need to put aside whatever differences we have and deal with what we have. And down we went. We drove down, amazing drive down, 100 miles an hour, roadblocks everywhere. We get to the police headquarters in Casablanca, and we're ushered up into the chief's offices and the head of the internal service, the DGST, was also there. Several other officials, some of whom I knew, some of whom I did not. Lauren, can I interrupt for just a second? There may be people listening who don't know of the responsibilities of the State Department and how the FBI must coordinate overseas investigations. So could you just quickly explain that so they understand the anger and why he thought that he should have made that phone call? Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks for having me clarify that. So when um, an FBI agent is assigned to an embassy or consulate overseas, although they are subordinate to the director and they are considered the director's personal representative, much like an ambassador is the president's personal representative, we are, however, subordinate to the chief of mission or also known as the ambassador, which means we have to keep that individual briefed. Now, the State Department's regional security officer, who's also the same as we call it 1811 job category as FBI agents, is responsible for the security of the embassy itself, the um, classified documents, and the embassy staff. And in most embassies, they are supported by a Marine security guard contingent. And we had one in Morocco. So Doug, as the RSO, his role was to account for all the Americans and account for the security of the facilities and ensure that every single person, if they were at home or were somewhere else, were safe. And if they needed protection, they got protection. But that's, that's largely their role. They can get involved in investigations, but their role is typically to ensure the security of the embassy and the embassy personnel and classified material. The chief of station for the CIA is the primary person responsible and the point, primary point for relationships with the intelligence services in any given country. They are the lead, just like the FBI is the lead in the United States. So if we're doing our jobs effectively, we have to coordinate extremely well with them. Where there is a difference and where that line, there is a line in the sand, and it's true in every country, and it's how each of us had to negotiate that, 
is that when you get to something that's considered criminal activity, and in this instance, going back to 1985 and 86, there was legislation passed that gave the FBI extraterritorial jurisdiction to investigate, respecting the sovereignty of other countries, any a certain category of crimes, so um, acts of terrorism, kidnapping, hostage-taking, homicides in the conduct of that. So we, on paper, without knowing if we had American victims, clearly this would have been an FBI lead if the Moroccans allowed us to work with them. That's key. The CIA can be there, but in many countries, and I'll speak to my countries, the countries that I have worked in, the 24 that I had then, the countries I worked in from New York, from the JTTF also, um, is that most of those countries will keep talking to the CIA until you cross that line where you're going to start dealing with prosecutors and the judicial system. Then oftentimes, at least in the system I was in, they have to take a step aside and the primary information comes to the FBI. So for example, in France, once that line was crossed with a terrorism case, they knew they're not gonna talk to the CIA anymore. I mean, they are as a practical matter, but all the information is gonna go through the FBI and funnel to the CIA station. So it's, it's a little bit complex, but he would have viewed this as his primacy, which is why I acknowledged his anger but also said, look, this is an act of terrorism from what we know at this point in time. We may have American victims. The Moroccans have agreed and asked for the assistance of the FBI. That gives us primacy. That's why I took the lead in setting up the meeting. And you are here. There was no effort to exclude you from any part of this. Thank you for that explanation. I think that's uh, going to be helpful. All right, great. So we're down um, sitting in the police headquarters in Casablanca. They're walking us through everything they knew. And at that point in time, they told us they had five locations, multiple suicide bombers at each. They had backpack bombs. At the time, we didn't realize, we found out afterwards that it was triacetone, triperoxide was the primary thing they were using along with ball bearings and nails that we would call three penny nail in the US as shrapnel. And what they explained is that as the attackers approached each of their venues, one was a hotel, one was a Jewish community center, one was an Italian restaurant. Fourth was a place called Casa de España, which was a restaurant and bar with outdoor eating. And then the fifth was near a Jewish cemetery. And the theory at that time was that there had been a, perhaps an inadvertent detonation by a public water fountain. And don't think of like a water fountain in a hallway, but a, a huge um, rock and metal place where people could come and gather water to bring to their homes. Uh, they also told us that as they approached each of these in Morocco, as in many countries in Africa, you have somebody who in the U.S. we would call them a bouncer, but they're a little bit more than that. So they're responsible for checking out everybody that's coming into the particular facility. And these guys were prepared for that. Um, they had tied machetes around clubs. And as they went up and approached these doors without even saying a word, they took out and they whacked the machete at the head and neck of each person at the door. Oh, my God. As a way to disable them so that they could get in. In they went at that point, And what we found out, and then I'll describe the scene a little bit, is that they used items as kind of as grenades first and then blew themselves up. And there were... If we didn't know for sure how many were dead at that time. They still didn't know if there was any Americans. And they said to us, we have a device that we think is unexploded. Can you look at it and tell us what it is? And I kind of laughed and I said, 
I'm not an explosives expert. I said I have had the opportunity over the course of my career to debrief an explosives expert for uh, the Abu Nadal organization, but I'm no expert, but I'm happy to look at it. And if you'll permit me to take pictures with a camera, we'll get them back to Washington. And so they did. They brought us into their lab. And although I couldn't tell what it was, I knew where they had it sitting wasn't a good idea. Because if you think a lab when we were in it as kids and an area where there's a hood that comes down and you can mix chemicals inside there, it was bright lights on it. And I said, probably not a good place to keep that device. So we photographed it, talked a little more. They said, look, why don't you go back? We know you have to write reports and come back after daylight. And so we headed back up to Rabat probably about 5.30 in the morning. We were, I should say, the first and only country that was briefed on what was happening. And I attribute that to the fact that we all had great relationships ahead of time. And that was something Director Mueller always emphasized is to get to know the people you were working with before the crisis happens. So you're not playing who am I and who are you when something bad happens. So we, we were lucky that we had that in play and that they were willing to share as much as they did. It was clear they were holding some things back, but so what? I don't know that the FBI would have given that kind of a, uh, an in-depth briefing to somebody in the same set of circumstances. Especially, you know, right after the event. So what's the distance between Rabat and Casablanca? About 70 miles. Okay. So it's, uh, but when they have the highway blocked off and you can go 100 miles an hour, you can get there pretty quickly. This is another point to keep in mind because it was 2003. I had no secure communications to FBI headquarters. None. No secure communications to anyone. So what we had to do was I made one quick call on a cell phone, then found at the time it was a stew, now a ST, but a secure telephone. And then the RSO literally had to sign on a computer with his password, leave, let me sit down and write up everything that I had to write up and get it back to headquarters along with the pictures. And I couldn't go directly to the FBI. I had to send it all to a State Department detailee who was in the um, operations center at FBI headquarters. And he then had to migrate it from the state system to the FBI system and then print it off and go up and start the briefings. So a really challenging set of circumstances for getting information across. Yeah, it doesn't sound very efficient. It wasn't, but that was life at that point in time. You know, it's nothing like it is today. And that's just what we learned to work with, work around, and deal with what we had to do. I also knew at that time that there would be teams coming in, undoubtedly from France, and ultimately teams came in from Spain and Germany as well. And the FBI said, we're getting them up as fast as we can. We had a bit of a debate. They wanted to send investigators and fly team people. And I told them the Moroccans didn't want that. So we went back and forth and ultimately had one person from the fly team, Bill Kurtz, and Kevin Cruz from New York, and Kirk Yeager and Leah West from the lab. And I went back down to Casablanca. They took me around to the scenes. And I will combine the, the view of the scenes there with what happened again when the guys arrived from uh, the States, because I went through the scenes twice. And Ali Safan mentioned it in the podcast he did with you. And, you know, a lot of us are used to seeing bad things and seeing broken bodies, but... When you're in a situation like those who are at Ground Zero know it, those who are at the Pentagon know it in Shanksville and anybody who's responded overseas, what strikes you full force in the face is what you smell and what you hear and not just what you're seeing. 
And in this instance, because two of the locations, one in particular, Casa de España, which is where most of the lives were lost, was a horrific mix because they had an outdoor restaurant area. So they were grilling and cooking fish and meat and chicken. So even by the time I got there, it had been, you know, barely 12 hours. But, and as I said, they had picked up most of the big pieces. And so you have that overlay of warm temperatures, low 80 degrees, sunny, rotting food, um, fire, because they had used these grenades and started a fire in this place and the explosion and the destruction of human life, which was extraordinary. And something else that really made this tough is that they had no clear order of who was in charge in Morocco at that point in time. They had never confronted anything of this magnitude. They, to this day, call it their 9-11. It was different people responding to different scenes. So at the hotel, Farah, you had the Gendarmerie Nationale, which is in the French system, which the Moroccans follow. They're part of the uh, defense apparatus, but they have a civilian policing role. Then you had the national police. Then you had the internal service. So it was chaos. And who was in charge in what scene? As of that morning when I got back down, there was an unexploded device at the hotel that they were trying to render safe. And so when I got to that scene, that was in process. They were doing the best they had. I have to tell you, for people who've never been through this, who don't have the kind of resources that we have in the United States, the Moroccans did the absolute best they could with what they had. But, I mean, there was media walking around. There was no control of the scenes. And one of the other things that really complicated it uh, when the guys got there is that they were so anxious to make it look like nothing happened that, for example, outside Positano Restaurant, which was across from the Belgian consulate, in which people wrongly said they were targeting the Belgian consulate. That was never the case. They were always targeting the restaurant because Westerners went there. And I have been to eat in that restaurant as well. And they were hosing down the street because they didn't want anybody to see the blood. But there goes the evidence. So, you know, when we got there, it was it was mind boggling. I was on the ground with with Kirk and with Leo, literally trying to dig through mud and everything they were hosing down to find whatever other bits of evidence we could get. And back at the Casa de España restaurant, I found a piece of skull. And I called one of the Moroccan police officers, and a finger. And I called one of the Moroccan police officers over, and I said, I think you should take this. He said, oh, no, madame, you can have it. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you need to take this. He said, oh, madame, you can have it. You're with the FBI. I said, no, there's really, it's significant. And, and so I said to him, this piece of skull, is completely clean. There is no tissue. There is no blood. There is no hair. It's nothing. It's pure. And he said, what does that mean, madame? And I said, what that means is that's likely a part of the skull of one of your bombers or somebody who was very close by because the force of it making that completely clean could only have been on one of the bombers or somebody extremely close by. It was all I could do to get them to bag it as a piece of evidence and, and take it back, which they did. You know, this went on in all the locations. Uh, did did you go to all five locations? Yes, multiple times. I went to all five locations first thing Saturday morning with the Moroccans. And then when the guys got there later in the day, we went back through all the scenes. And by the second go round, we were literally having to dodge the media. I'll never forget it. Jim Bitterford from CNN had flown down from Paris. And I'm ducking because I don't want anybody to see me, you know, and potentially recognize me. And... 
we were trying to deal with the scenes. There was no perimeter. There was no control of the scenes. The media is chomping around at the same time that we're trying to do what we were there to do, which was help. And when we went into the Jewish Community Center, for example, it was, that's one of the pictures I shared with you. You would have thought 10 people died in that location. And in fact, the only people that died in that location were the suicide bombers because it was Friday night. The Jewish Community Center was empty. So that was one of the amateurs sorts of things that we saw in this instance. The devastation is just mind-blowing. And, and I will have, for those who want to see them, I, I will have them as part of the show notes. But can we step back just for a second? You sure. were saying that you didn't want uh, the reporter to recognize you. Is that because you did not want it known that the FBI was providing assistance? Yes, because we don't like to go out. Nobody, Everybody who knows the FBI or who's been in it that's the last thing you want to do in that situation is be dealing with the media. But I also knew that unlike in the States where as a special agent in charge or the assistant director of charge, you're the point person who's responsible for talking to the media while everybody else does their work. I wanted nothing to do with it. You know, it, it was us helping the Moroccans and it got out soon enough that we were there. It didn't take too long, but we managed to avoid having any direct contact with them and we did our best to help them at the scenes because even by the time the guys got there, there were still things that they missed. At the Positano restaurant, the guy said, let's go up on the roof. And so we did. And we found a head. They missed a head. So a head, literally one of the bombers had popped up off the body and landed on the roof, which we collected uh, late the next day for them. For example, they didn't know what bodies came from which location since no many different agencies had their hands on them. So to fast forward a little bit, I decided to call the medical examiner. And I said to the guys, you know what? We need to talk to him because nobody else is going to know about him. And I bet there's things he can tell us. I also at the same time made a call to the head of the laboratory and technical work for the gendarmerie in the country as well, because I had, was, had been with him in Marrakesh and asked him for a briefing. And he said, absolutely, we're going to get everything together. We, and they were more worried about making a formal presentation to us, literally professional presentation, they didn't want to make any mistakes. So I called the medical examiner and he said, you're still here? And I said, yes, we're helping your country. You know, we found now that there's no Americans, but the kingdom has asked us to stay and help. And I said, I'm wondering if I could come and visit you. He said, of course you can. And I said, is it okay if I bring colleagues with me? And he said, yes, of course. So there's about eight of us, which at that point in time, not only includes FBI personnel, but includes other unnamed CIA personnel uh, who came not just from Morocco, but from other regions in the world who had familiarity with this type of thing. And our initial thought now is we are thinking it could be uh, Al-Qaeda or the um, Moroccan Islamic combatant group. So eight of us go. So he's out on the curb. And then I think one of the best lines I've ever heard in my career, let alone my life, is he meets us at the curb. He's in blue scrubs. And I get out of the car. He goes, oh, Madame Lorraine. He shakes my hand. He gives me a, a kiss on either side of the cheek, which is perfectly normal, was not inappropriate. Puts his arm in mine, greets everybody else, puts his arm in mine. He goes, okay, let's go. Last week was the theoretical, and this week is the practical, referring oh. back to the conference. <laughs> what I mean, the, the whole timing of this is absolutely uh, <laughs> just so mind-boggling that you <laughs> did have the conference, and then now, now this is happening. So at this time, yeah. nobody has claimed responsibility. Correct. Hmm. 
But the Moroccans were very rapid in identifying, uh, some of which they shared with us the first night, um, who was likely responsible. And all they didn't initially acknowledge it, they had one person in custody who had who had fled and did not detonate their device. So they had somebody in custody at that point that they were talking to, which we come to find out about because of other means. So the medical examiner's briefing us, and again, going to the relationships, not to highlight me, but to highlight the relationship, he said to all the guys, me and all the guys in the room, I'm going to be open and share this briefing with you, but it's because of Madame Lauren and my relationship with her, because I don't know any of you, but I trust her. And so I'll talk to you. And he proceeded to tell us what he knew. Keep in mind, he's the only medical examiner for the country. And he said to us after his briefing, um, would you like to see the kamikazes? And we're all kind of looking at each other. And I said, see the kamikazes? He said, yep. I said, sure. So we went down into a basement area and into a room, which was clearly set up for autopsies with steel table. And he had an assistant gesture to another steel table off to the side that was covered with plastic. And uh, the assistant took the plastic off, and there were 12 heads. There oh were the comic Oh, my God. 12 oh my heads. God. And honestly, I looked at them. You would have known them if you knew them, with the exception of two whose faces were pretty much uh, gone. And where's the rest of the <laughs> where's the rest of their bodies? Oh, we come to that next, because after he shows us the heads, and even a couple of the guys walked out of the room at that point, he said, you know, let me show you where we have the rest of the bodies and the rest of the body parts. And I said, okay, we walk into an adjacent room and I kid you not, my mouth dropped open because there looking at me was 12 cubbies, if you will, for bodies. And that was it. And if anybody who's been alive long enough or remembers in the United States back in the 1920s and 30s, refrigerators were wooden and they had little latches that you lifted up to open. That was what they had to hold bodies in 2003 in Casablanca wooden, only 12 bins for 12 bodies. We had 45 dead. And that was just from the attack. That's not counting regular dead people coming through there in the area. So they literally had bodies and parts piled on each other in each one of these bins. They had. Oh, you mean, you mean all mixed together? Yep. Wow. Yep. They had bodies out in the hallway on uh, other tables with dry ice on them. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And he said, you know, it's clear they don't really know what came from where because everything was a jumbled mess. So literally he opened one of these containers, had his assistant pull the tray out. And what got me the most at this point, Jerry, is I've seen a lot of dead bodies and I can deal with that. But the assistant pulls out the tray and there's legs. There's just a jumble of legs in there and other body parts. And the assistant reaches down with bare hands, no gloves, and pulls out two legs. He goes like, we don't know where these came from. And we're standing there, and the fluid from all of this is running all around in the floor, puddling around us. Is and this a refrigerated room? <laughs> no, just the the actual storage bins for the body were refrigerated. The room wasn't. It was an open doorway between there and where the autopsies were conducted. And then another doorway was out into the hallway. Okay. All right. So it was incredible. So we literally, at that point with the explosives guys made the decision that we would try and help them identify what remains came from what scene. So we were literally looking, there was pieces of fabric, there was pieces of shrubbery all mixed up in this jumble of body parts. 
And, and I guess I have to go back to how do they know that the 12 on the table were the suicide bombers? Because of the condition they were in. And when you have, they had uh, backpacks in the interest of time, let's just say they had backpacks and they had bottles that were about the size of wine bottles filled with TATP in the backpacks, triacetone triperoxide in a liquid form and shrapnel. And then they had a wire that ran down their arms with a thumb switch in their hand, which is how they used, that's how they detonated. All right. And so that's where most likely if they have just a single head that's been decapitated from a body, it's most likely the suicide bomber. Yes, because okay. the body, the what happens with the human body when you have explosives strapped on like that is it blows you apart. It disintegrates everything in the middle, and all you have left is a head, sometimes um, hands and wrists. And in some instances, we had just a lower leg, and others we had from the knee down of the foot. And the, the medical examiner was a forensic doctor, so he, along with the explosives guys, were able to clearly articulate that that was the case. And so that's what we knew. We were not going to find any torsos left of these guys. You know how you, as an FBI agent, are just somebody who's very curious, which is, you know, what most FBI agents are. And you learn all of this information that you're fascinated with. And then you realize, I'll never use this in real life. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm sitting here just absolutely with my mouth open, learning all of this. And I'm fascinated. Then I'm thinking like, where will I ever be able to use this? Uh, if I'm lucky, <laughs> never. But and, and, but nonetheless, this is just, uh, I, I'm glad to know. I'm glad to know how when a body blows up, what happens. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, which is, I mean, that much I knew enough too, going back to that piece of skull. Um, and just to give a quick description, because they didn't adequately explain it before, the device they had that was unexploded, which we found out they used as grenades, was about the size of a, a large bottle of baby food, as we know it in this country with a green plastic cap and it had some items in it, which turned out to be explosives and they tossed them as grenades before they detonated in each of these locations. And at the Casa de España restaurant, their grenades hit wires and started a fire there. So there was also a fire as well as the explosions, the death, the food and all of that mixed in. So it was, it was, it was unreal. You never forget the smells. You never forget what you hear because it doesn't take long for the bugs to start coming around. So you hear the buzzing, you smell everything. And it's, uh, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant at all. Now, and what's the, the normal daily temperature in Casablanca? At that time, well, we used to joke that in Morocco, it's warm and sunny and tomorrow it's sunny and warm. But in May and at that point in time, the temperature was in the low 80s during the daytime. And as we move forward in the story, as we're there with the medical examiner and he's showing us this and we're talking, we're like, okay, we're going to help you try and figure out which body came from which place. I get a frantic call to get back immediately to the uh, police headquarters in Casablanca, the um, chief of station. He said, you've got to get back here right away. And I said, okay. So we, I said to the ME, I said, we'll be back. And we took off, you know, really fast, got back to police headquarters, went through the main building out into the courtyard area and stopped absolutely dead in our tracks. And it was like, oh, man, because the Moroccans had been conducting searches, found that they had used the home of the mother of one of the bombers to put everything together. And they had collected everything that was unused. So that was 76 bottles, wine-sized bottles, 
of TATP, all kinds of detonators, all kinds of other components to make both the grenades as well as the backpack bombs. They had it all laid out, like all the bottles of TATP were here, all the uh, detonators were here, all the other watches, because they used simultaneously with Casio watches as well. All out in the open sun, and it was like 90 degrees that day. Oh, my God. And I just like physically jerked back and turned and looked at Kirk and Leo. I'm like, well, I won't say what I said, but I said something that was quite an expletive. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I said, what are they doing with this out in the sun? The explosives guy said, let me go talk to them. And so they went and talked to them. And immediately they got a fire truck there. And our guys had them start hosing everything down. But I was stunned because they just, you know, and I'm not criticizing them. They just didn't know what they were dealing with and to have all of this stuff sitting out. And it was high noon, you know, like 12, 1 o'clock. So the sun is beating down on all of this stuff that they had collected from searches. It was from an investigative standpoint, it was wonderful that they had collected all this. But from a, a safety standpoint, it was initially horrifying. Yeah, flammable liquids just <laughs> exposed. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, you know, they did a great job with all that. The guys, everything was made safe. But then obviously we had all that to deal with, new information and so on and so forth. And everybody worked well together. And we had other teams in the country then, as I had mentioned earlier, from France, from Spain, from Germany, but they were all looking to us to be the lead. And we had several conferences, usually once or twice a day. When you, when you say teams, FBI teams or teams from those other countries? Teams from those other countries. Okay. So and France sent, there were some of the guys I knew from their lab and their investigators and Spain did the same, uh, Germany. So you had all these people converging and trying to tell the Moroccans what to do, but the Moroccans were listening to the Americans. Because which, of, because of Madame Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about me so much as, you know, it was the FBI. And at that point in time, they still, you know, colonialism is over in terms of the French in North Africa, but many in North Africa have not forgotten that. So it's still a, a sore spot at some point in times. And, and I can remember my French counterpart in assigned in Morocco made a snide remark one day and said, oh, so you got it first again, huh? And I just smiled and I said, hey, whatever it takes. And, you know, just kind of made light of it. But it was challenging. And at one point, the Moroccan said, Kirk Yeager was the world's expert on TATP at that point. He's still at the FBI. And he's magnificent. He's a great human being as well. And they said, could he give us a class on this? So there in the middle of the investigation, try again, triacetone, triperoxide. It was used in the Madrid train attacks in 2004. It was used in the attacks in London in 2005. It was part of what Najibullah Zazi was going to use in the planned attack against New York back in uh, 2009. And it's part of the reason why people can't get on airplanes anymore with a, only a certain amount of liquids because it's very difficult to detect in its liquid form. Uh, the Israelis are the only ones I'm aware of that have made any effort to create something that can detect TATP. So uh, that's just to give you an idea of what this was. And it had not been seen a lot. The Palestinian terrorist groups used it a lot, but it was not otherwise used very frequently. So there is Kirk asked to give a, an impromptu class for the Moroccans, for the French, the Spanish, the Germans, about uh, triacetone, triperoxide in the middle of the investigation. And really, that's part of what you're there for, because yep. now you know that there are no American fatalities. And so you 
you're not really there as an investigative role. You're there more uh, as assistance. And I, I also take yes. it you're gathering intelligence for future investigations that the FBI may actually be a part of. Yes. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that's a key point. Ambassador Tutwiler returns from Iraq. She tells President Bush, I got to get back to Morocco because of these attacks. And she came down to Casablanca. We spoke privately. She said, I know you're working hard. You've been working nonstop, but can you help me explain why you're still here? Why this team is still here since there's no American victims? So I explained to her that separate and apart from that, we had the ability to provide police cooperation legitimately within the context of the FBI, but it had to come at the request of the Moroccans. And I explained to Ambassador Tutwiler, and again, to those listening, and I'm glad you, you raised this point, we were there simply to help them. We had no lead in the investigation at that point in time. It was purely support to the Kingdom of Morocco and all the different services they had. So we move forward. I have another conversation with the medical examiner and I go back to him. And that's ultimately how I find out that the uh, Moroccans have somebody in custody. He did an amazing thing. And I don't want to explain it totally, but suffice it to say, he left me alone in a room where there was information that he purposely left out for me to look at. And it made a huge difference from an intelligence perspective because all of this, to go back just back briefly a couple of days to when it happened, you know, we're the first country getting this intelligence. Everything that we got went right to the director and right to the White House. So the U.S. had the lead and was getting all the intelligence information in this case. And we also then begin to identify who's responsible. And one of the names that keeps coming to the forefront is Kareem El-Majadi, who ultimately was killed in April of 2005. So I mentioned some of the other events in the world. What had happened four days before these attacks on May 12th was also um, suicide bombings in Riyadh that killed uh, 35 people, including, I believe, nine Americans. So we have that attack. We have this one. And the and, are, and are, there, are there FBI investigators deployed to Riyadh too? Well, we had uh, a league out there. I don't know the extent of who was there because, to be perfectly honest, I knew there was people there, but I was so focused on the 24 countries we had that apart from just reading the intelligence, I wasn't paying attention to who might have been sent there. But I'm sure that they were there, and I knew we had a league out there. And we had dead Americans there, so that made it different from uh, Casablanca. Right, right. So El Majadi comes up as a likely name, and ultimately what happens is the conclusion of the best intelligence minds and the sharing of intelligence among all these services and the Moroccans is that Majadi is behind it. And he was clearly viewed as part of Al-Qaeda, and not only Riyadh and Casablanca, but he is believed responsible for Madrid and the preparation for London. He's killed before the London attacks happened, but um, we used to call it train the trainer, and that's how he was viewed, as he was the one going in, providing the training, leaving the country, and he is a Moroccan national uh, by birth, so he fled the country. They don't get him at that point in time, but this is what we think's happened, is it's definitely AQ, it's train the trainer, and the other really troubling thing that comes up is that we find out that Majadi's been in the United States at least twice and never hit anybody's radar. He had been there in, I think, 98, 99, and then uh, potentially one other time in 2000. And this was part of the difficulty at that time also, because we had, um, without getting into the details, we had intelligence from 
NSA, but again, without names of, of somebody in the country. And it was extremely troubling to find out he had been in Newark and he had been in Boston. And that was confirmed after the fact. But you talk about the FBI then having to scramble and go backwards in time and try and identify who he may have met with, what was going on, and what did that mean in terms of potential threat to the United States. And not only that, in the same time period as they're gathering intelligence, interrogating people, they being the Moroccans, they find out that there was a whole series of plots which were disrupted because after Casablanca, the plans were to attack two seaside towns that are known to be very, they're very attractive to tourists. One was Eswira and one is Agadir. And they also had a tax plan for other major tourism sites such as Marrakesh. So from this horror in Casablanca also came the disruption of what was an entire series of attacks that were planned to occur around the kingdom. The one other thing uh, going backwards, and, and I apologize for not saying this at the time, but it slipped my mind, is just prior to these attacks that week in May, bin Laden had put out an, a, ta a tape in the Arab world, and he identified what he called uh, a series, uh, several apostate or non-believing Arab nations that were, as he called, enslaved by the United States and um, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Yemen were among the countries they named. So this tape is released by bin Laden shortly before the attacks in both Riyadh and Casablanca. And so that is the reason why Casablanca was a, a target. Were there any other reasons they chose Casablanca? Well, there in all of each of the North African of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, each of them had their own, uh, they were known by the French acronym, which is GICM, but their own Islamic combatant fighting groups that had been uh, creating problems in each of these countries throughout time. This was nothing new, but they had never mounted anything on this scale. So this is, again, one of the earliest examples we have of local combatant groups, if you will, Islamic extremists in certain countries throwing in and um, allying with Al-Qaeda. This is the beginning of all this happening. And then you have the formal alliances starting to be declared in 2003, 2004, 2005. So this is when they realized, hey, you know, we're in, we're junior varsity. We want to go play with the varsity guys. And that's where you start seeing these individual groups in each of these countries lining up and trying to get connected with Al-Qaeda. Now, one of the articles that I read, matter of fact, a, a fantastic article that you sent me that lists all of the terrorist attacks after 9-11. It's fascinating when you see all the terrorist attacks, you know, across the, the world. Uh, it is just unbelievable. But one of those articles, when they talk about the Casablanca bombing, they indicated that that Casablanca was targeted because of the high number of uh, Jewish communities there and that many of the targets were Jewish owned. That and also places where Westerners, foreigners gathered. So the Hotel Farah that, again, that was stopped by the valiant efforts of somebody at the front door who was killed. But that was a hotel. It's still there today. I was coincidentally, I just walked by it last June when I was back in Morocco. And that hotel was known for a place because Casablanca is kind of the New York of Morocco. It's the business center. My father was assigned to Casablanca uh, when he was in the Air Force, and I've got these wonderful pictures wow. of me uh, on on a beach in Casablanca. And 
in 2017, I, I got to, to visit Morocco again. So yeah, fantastic. It's, it's a wonderful change. And there had been going back to World War II, there was a base uh, north of Rabat um, in a town called Kanitra, which happens to be where the uh, Moroccan National Police Academy is located. I'll have to ask my father what the Air Force base was, but uh, I mean, that's just a sidebar. It's just kind of fascinating uh, to think that, you know. It, and it goes to the relationship, though, Jerry, because the United States and Morocco have had a longstanding relationship. And one fact that the Moroccans, every Moroccan, whether they're in a city or whether they're uneducated in the countryside, knows they are very proud of the fact that Morocco was the first country to recognize the United States after the Revolutionary War, the first in the world. And they pride themselves on that. Yeah, I, I actually got to go to the, the first American embassy when we were there. It's a beautiful building uh, of all Tangiers. the history. Yeah, it was in Tangiers. I think it's more of a museum now. We toured the entire, entire place. So yeah, I had forgotten about that significant historical tidbit. Yeah, so we've been fortunate to really, you know, it's ebbed and flowed at different times, but by and large had a long-standing, very good relationship uh, between the United States and the, the Kingdom of Morocco. And uh, it was very good. If I can just say also, there were a few things that came out of this. Um, you and I had talked earlier about touching on perhaps some leadership lessons, but in a, a practical sense, logistically speaking, it was a direct result of the attacks and our support of Morocco in the three weeks after the attack that allowed that office to be open because Director Mueller made the decision to visit Morocco just about three weeks after the attack. I met him in Tunisia. We went there first and then we flew to Morocco and I had the incredible privilege and honor uh, along with the director and Ambassador Tutwiler to be presented to the king just barely a month after those attacks happened. He struck me, because obviously I've not met a lot of monarchs in my time, but remarkably sensitive, remarkably interested, very focused on his people. And as a result of conversations I had with the director, conversations I had with the ambassador, conversations the two of them had together, and then we were with when we were presented to the king, that's how the office was opened in Rabat. It was a direct result of all of that happening in that three-week period of time. Then that office was opened in uh, September of 2004. And I would think that had a lot to do also with the sensitivity and the respect that the FBI showed while they were there in the, in the country assisting with the investigation. Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things I am so proud about, having been an FBI agent for 29 years and the work I did around the world. And, you know, nobody is better than us. There's a lot of people that come close. The French really were superb in terms of professionalism and expertise, but we just go in, we don't ever judge, not in the experiences I've been in, we're there to help. And I can't tell you what an impact that has in any country, with any citizen population, with any service that we deal with, is because nobody's judging and saying, unlike what we have to do within the United States, well, you screwed that up, you screwed that up. I mean, that comes often within the context of their own government. But I was so proud to be a part of that team and just be able to do what we could to help and said, what do you need? How can we help? What can we do? What do you need from this? And to have that kind of camaraderie going forward, you know, as, as a lot of us had to deal with after 9-11 in the face of a terrible tragedy, but remarkable relationships, remarkable work done, and really putting together all the pieces of a puzzle 
that had an impact and reverberated through the intelligence world for a long time after that. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the reasons that I get so irritated with the cliche that we don't play well with others, because our strength is exactly what you said, our relationships. And so whenever I see that, that cliche, that misconception, you know, I am uh, determined to try to break it down. And I'm glad you're doing that, because there's no question, like any organization, there are some fools in it. But by and large, you know, the FBI has marvelous people, does marvelous work. And I tell you, even at times where people do not like what the American government or the American administration, regardless of who's sitting in the White House, has to do, they are very capable, unlike us sometimes, of separating American people from the leadership. And the amount of respect throughout the world that the FBI enjoys, it actually surprised me when I first got overseas. I was amazed. It opens doors like nothing else. And as a woman working in Muslim countries and throughout Africa, where women are not generally regarded as having a whole lot of value, uh, that always, always got me in the door. And then it was my ability and the guys with Jay, uh, Jay Abbott and Bruce Vecchioni were the two ALATs at the time. They were absolutely terrific. And it was taking the time to build the relationships, knowing what you could promise and what you couldn't promise and not making a mistake between the two and ensuring that you delivered on what you said you could deliver. The sky's the limit. I literally used to have to say to people, if you can't do that legally, don't do it for me. I don't want it, <laughs> which is an interesting, it's another conversation for another time of, uh, you know, something that agents confront overseas is getting help, even if it means breaking laws, which oh, bending over do. backwards for, for yeah, the yeah, FBI. too much. <laughs> so I don't know where you want to go next, but I would love to hear more about who the suicide bombers were. I'm always okay. curious how people can be convinced to take their own lives for ideological, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so all of these young men, they were all in their early 20s. And they came from an area of Casablanca known as City Moomin. All around the major cities, but particularly around Casablanca, are horrific slums. And when we think of slums in the United States, by and large, you know, we think of Section 8 housing, but actual structures. When we're talking the area, City Moomin and some of the other areas around Casablanca where these young men lived and, and grew up, they're not even structures with four walls. If they're lucky to have a piece of plastic or corrugated tin as a covering, they're lucky if they have walls. They are literally on top of one another. The streets are dirt. They have to go to, as I mentioned, a fountain was one of the locations where one of the bombers detonated. They have to go to a common area like that to get water, which, you know, go back a couple hundred years here, you know, 150, that wasn't so uncommon, but this is the reality. There'll be one hub for electricity that people will illegally tap into because in these homes, such as they are, there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's no infrastructure to speak of, and they're literally living on top of each other in a structure that is not much bigger than an average supervisor's office in an FBI, in an office not in New York where they have offices. It's a small space. You know, you might be talking 15 by 20, if that, maybe less. And you have whole families living in that. And oftentimes they grab whatever work they can. Um, oftentimes they're not fully employed. 
They have the ability in Morocco to go to school, but often, again, they're not going to school. So you're talking these young men as being uneducated, incredibly poor, desperate, and wanting to have a better life. And with the beginnings of the internet, people are just starting at, at this point in time in 2003 around the world to recognize that there's more out there. But what they're getting to first is things that are damaging, which is access to this kind of material. Now, there's no evidence that they had any computers, anything like that. They were all given the same pair of running shoes, the same Casio watches, and certain other things that they all wore at the time that that happened. And, you know, they were trained. But it well, was, What were they promised? Do you have any idea? They were promised going to heaven. Life would be better for them. And it would reflect well on their families. Uh, they all knew exactly where they were going, which was death. But what you know, that message has been so successful, regrettably, in large portions of the world that you know to go against the evil. And they regarded these young men, from what we know. I mean, you can't ask them; they're dead. But you know, there's there's a lot of anger, as you find in any country where there's a tremendous amount of poverty and a tremendous amount of people who have nothing. And then you have one portion of society that has a lot. And Morocco's come a long way. I have loved watching the changes that have come about since that time. But, you know, you still have a whole lot of people that cannot get out of poverty and cannot have a life for themselves. And, you know, a lot of people have done work in terms of trying to understand why somebody chooses that path, why somebody that might be an otherwise moderate Muslim chooses that path. And while there are certain commonalities, and some in the West have liked to say that it was one certain thing, it's not. And so what draws people in Morocco or Algeria versus what draws them in, in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan or Iraq or Afghanistan, it's not necessarily the same thing. There are different dynamics going on. And while you can find similarities, you can't make a generalization as to why they did and that it's not even that they went through like a whole period of radicalization as we see with other people, as we've seen with some of the people in the U.S., like uh, Neil Bryan Venus, who was just on 60 Minutes this past Sunday, you know, who self-radicalized. Uh, this, from everything the Moroccans were able to determine, this was not a long-term uh, courting period, if you will, between El Majadi and others and these young men. It still is mind-boggling to me when an American is self-radicalized because, you know, we're not in that type of, you know, severe slum-level poverty. So it seems that it would be extremely difficult to change the mindset of an American, but yet it happens. Well, it does. And, you know, Venus was actually one of the biggest investigations we had when I was heading the international terrorism part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And it was amazing, but you know, he's a, it's fascinating to listen to him now, but he was really a disaffected, lost young man. And he found his purpose in life through his online radicalization. Well, first his conversion, he was raised Catholic and then his conversion to, to Islam. But he did that all by himself. You know, he's an amazing story because of that. And because he managed, you know, as Andy McCabe also mentioned in his interview and Venus did, you know, he kind of broke the mold because he did his own radicalization and decided, hey, I'm going to go over there and literally just flew in and went over, tried to meet the right people based on his online interactions and, you know, got embraced into the fold rather quickly, which is something we didn't think was possible at that time. 
Just absolutely fascinating. So how long did you stay in Casablanca? Um, after the attacks, I was there about three weeks. And that was an aside for a funny part, too, is because I had all, you know, when I at that point in time and when I was in the FBI, I was dressed in suits, usually with skirts. I had one pair of pants <laughs> and one pair of boots that I could wear every day. You know, people were out trying to buy me clothes, jeans and stuff that I could wear at the site and doing the investigation. But yeah, I was there for three weeks, went back to Paris and left immediately again because the director's trip had been scheduled into Tunisia and Morocco. So, yep, I was in, in country total almost a, a month. Wow. Yep, everything was left. You know, some people have said, well, couldn't you have had the ALATs come down? And I said, no, because as I mentioned very early in our conversation, Jerry, we had about a thousand pending leads. There was so much going on at that point in time that I couldn't afford, we couldn't afford as an office to pull anybody else out of Paris. And I guess the thing that people need to understand, you know, there's agents like me who are working economic crime who have sent leads to Paris for for white collar (laughs) crime cases and drug cases and all other types of cases. And we're angry. We're sitting back there angry (laughs) because we can't get our lead covered by, you know, the legat. So I'll give you some slack now when I think back. (laughs) You're so right. I mean, when I got there, it was so chaotic. And I was so worried, I swear, and I mean this in all seriousness, that uh, that these guys were going to drop dead heart attacks. I was frightened because of the pace and the volume of what we had. And I made a decision. I told headquarters, I said, we're doing nothing but terrorism unless it's on fire. And we noticed the other field offices and said, we're putting this stuff in pending and active unless you tell us it needs to be addressed immediately. And it was funny. In that time period, we had a top tenor cop. James Cop, who was uh, shooting doctors who were abortion providers up in uh, upstate New York. So, yeah, thanks for cutting me some slack now, Jerry. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I would have done it back then if I had only known. So there's so much more for us to cover, and I know that this will probably be a, a little extra long episode, but I would love to just get a brief rundown of your career. I mean, I I mentioned at the very beginning that you were one of the first female members of SWAT. And I can't leave that without going into it a little deeper or else I'm going to get emails from people asking me, how come you didn't ask her more about that? So are we at a point where we can kind of step away from the case review, which has been fascinating and, and, and talk about a few other things? Sure, absolutely. I I loved my career. And, you know, you said I had a lot of firsts, but I have to tell you that it was never about being the first anything. Anything and everything that I did during my entire career was driven by curiosity, by an interest in something and finding ways to make myself better and more effective at my job. And that's what caused me to try out for SWAT in Milwaukee. So to be clear, we're not talking the New York office SWAT team. But I was in Milwaukee in 1984, and there was only six women in the division. And Joyce Atkins was another one of the women there with me, and one of the very few women agents of color at that point in time. I remember Joyce, definitely. She's fabulous. So Joyce and I decided we'd try out for SWAT. And my reasoning, and, and part of this was hers, although I would let her speak for herself, is I thought, I have to get better. I want more tactical training 
And I want more real life experiences because I knew if I made it on the SWAT team, we would train with the Milwaukee Police Department and the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office and other agencies in the area. And I thought I can get better and feel more confident in what I'm doing if I give this a try. So I did, you know, and I both Joyce and I made it. And I think some of the guys were astonished. But I got to tell you, the older guys were always terrific to us. Really terrific. If we had crap, it was more from our peers. But I loved it. I learned how to repel. I did tons of shooting. We did all kinds of things outdoors as well as in buildings and, you know, with blanks and everything else. And you haven't lived till you've shot a gun in a stairwell um, in a building. I can imagine. With or without air protection? Without. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, so, it was a great experience. Were you a firearms instructor also? No. Oh, that's surprising. No. And that's one thing. You know, there are lots of female agents that are firearms instructors. Once uh, you have female agents that are proficient with firearms to be firearms mm-hmm. instructors, you would think that there'd be more that might try out for the SWAT team. But the SWAT team is a true fraternity. And, um, you know, sometimes maybe it's not worth the, the, uh, the I don't know. Well, don't it's know. interesting you say that because obviously we're talking, you know, uh, 35 years ago, but, and things are much different now, but one shout out I have to give to one of my former SACs in New York who was absolutely terrific. And when I arrived in the New York field office in 1986, he called me in. He said, I see you're on the SWAT team in Milwaukee. And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, I think you should try out New York. I thought he was kidding. All right. Now, keep in mind, the status of women in 1986 was, it was a little different than it is today in terms oh, of the FBI. I, I remember it well. Yes, you do. <laughs> uh, I came in in 1982, so I, yep. I remember you know, it well. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I and know I look at him about. and I'm like, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, you're pulling my chain here. And he looked at me. He read right into my thoughts. He goes, no, I'm serious. I think you should give it a try. And I looked at him. I said, well, thank you, sir, for uh, for suggesting it. I'll give it to thought. And I'm thinking to myself, no, 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 no. Milwaukee SWAT's one thing, but there's no way I'm going to do this in New York. But what I loved is that he really encouraged me. And to me, that was tremendous. You know, he's not making fun of me, not dismissing. It was one of the first things he brought out and a one-on-one we had. And I'd only been an agent two and a half years at that point. So I will be forever thankful for that. So anyway, so Milwaukee was my first office. Uh, then I went to New York, which was home. In Milwaukee, I worked also national security matters, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and that's called wartime. So a lot going on there and volunteered for all kinds of other things in the office, which was the beauty of an office of small or medium size, as I think you probably know, Jerry, is you can raise your hand to go out on anything. And it was a great way to learn. Yes, absolutely. When I got to New York, I was assigned to a Chinese counterintelligence squad, which I initially was very unhappy about, but it wound up being a wonderful, wonderful experience. And from there, I went to FBI headquarters in what was then Division 5, which is now, at the time, it was all counterintelligence and counterterrorism uh, together, and did that for a period of time, then moved over to counterterrorism full-time and worked. Uh, Dave Tubbs was the section chief for a while, and then John O'Neill. So I worked with uh, John O'Neill for about 90 to 95 until the point that he left the FBI. I loved that experience, as I alluded to earlier, 
had the opportunity, which I hope to be able to talk more about someday, of with the Pittsburgh field office and an amazing agent who uh, is fortunately no longer with us, Earl Ferlino. And we had the opportunity to uh, essentially get a recruitment in the Abu Nadal organization. And oh, wow. Yes. And debriefed this individual and another individual. Um, I, guess, I guess that's all classified now. It is. I'm hoping because of the length of time, it's something I'd like to explore being able to talk about because it was extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary what we were able to do. And it was, when, in fact, when I got to France as the legat, the French remembered the reporting and they said it's the first time we got any reporting of any use from the FBI, <laughs> which cracked me up. But, <laughs> but we had, we got so much intelligence out of this. It was an extraordinary time. Um, an opportunity to be a part of that. And that kind of got me my love for counterterrorism. Um, from there, I went to WFO and had the, over at the time, was called the Overseas Espionage Squad. And we also had the single case squads of what turned out to be Earl Pitts, uh, Bob Hansen, Ames, all of that. So all of the inconclusive or failed polygraphs, as they were referred to at the time, of CIA employees were sent to the squad I had. And it was my decision which most people can't believe whether to open a case or not. You know, now all of that has to come through headquarters. And while we certainly coordinated with headquarters, I literally made the decision as to whether or not to initiate a case back then. We were a flyout squad because espionage is one of those categories of crime that the FBI can investigate extraterritorially. So if anyone's accused of compromising classified intentionally or negligently or outright spying, and they're assigned to a diplomatic establishment, it's the FBI's primary jurisdiction. And it's also an exception to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, thanks to Clayton Lone Tree, the Marine Security Guard uh, in Moscow back in the late 80s and early 90s, who was recruited. And as a result, Congress passed legislation in the Intelligence Authorization and Appropriation Act that made that an exception to active duty. So any active duty member of the U.S. military to this day, if they're assigned to a U.S. diplomatic establishment anywhere in the world, and there is an accusation of a compromise of classified, it's FBI jurisdiction to investigate and prosecute within the Department of Justice, of course, in full coordination with the military. So that was also a really, really interesting time. And the agents we had cases on six out of seven continents. So the agents were always on the road and always traveling and they did magnificent work. And they were like everybody I've worked with, they were a privilege to, to be a part of a team with them. But at that point, I started thinking about working overseas. I had a couple of friends working overseas and I started applying for legat jobs. And I was lucky enough to do a, a temporary duty assignment in Tel Aviv, Israel in early 2001 which was a fascinating time to be there because the Intifada had started, uh, that Intifada had started in September later that year, three weeks before 9-11 is when I was selected for Paris. It was great. It was really terrific. And then I came back and was selected to uh, be the ASAC, Assistant Special Agent in Charge for the International Terrorism Operations of the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York, which was also a tremendous assignment and spent a few years there. So was that your last assignment, one of, one of your last assignments? New York was my last assignment. Um, I 
moved from the Joint Terrorism Task Force um, and did some work with uh, CI over there too, because that was a very strong program. They had some unique things going on. Uh, and it's anybody who's worked CT knows. And CT in a place like New York, you know, you, you get to a threshold and it's kind of like, okay, it's time to do something different. And I just want to be clear to clarify, CI is counterintelligence and CT is counterterrorism. Correct. So it was, um, it was time to move on. It was, it was a great, great experience. You know, we had over, we had about 120 NYPD detectives. We had IRS agents, the largest joint terrorism task force in the nation. And we had either part-time or full-time representation from more than 50 different federal, state, and local agencies um, in New York State. And again, that's one of the things that I you know, keep trying to push is the fact that we you know, work very, very closely with our law enforcement partners. And whenever there is a big incident, no matter what it is, as far as violent crime, we're all there and we're all working together. Have you, have you had a chance to watch the, the new CBS TV show, FBI? I have seen a couple of episodes of it, yes. Yeah, I do like it as opposed to like a criminal mind and Quantico (laughs) because, because they do try to try to make the, the stories authentic, but of course it's going to be entertaining. So they're going to throw a bunch of a whole bunch of stuff and creative license. But the one criticism that I have for the show, and I do a a weekly reality check review Mm -hmm. is that they always have the FBI as, you know, in charge in the middle of New York with no NYPD around and yeah. it's like, look, if there's a bombing <laughs> or there's a murder, you know, the NYPD are going to be right there. And I just yeah. wish they would, they would show that a little bit better. And- yeah, I completely agree with you. That's, um, that is not reality. And, uh, you know, I was lucky because the, there was only two women that were ever from NYPD on the task force, which I, I wish they had been more, but I really, really enjoyed and have enormous respect and cared a great deal for all the detectives that I've worked with. Uh, they were just tremendous resources, tremendous assets. And, you know, what some of your listeners might not know is although there are joint terrorism task forces in every FBI field office and in some of the resident agencies, New York is one place where the cases are assigned to everybody. So when I had that portion of the JTTF, if a new case came in, a new case was opened, you know, there would be co-case agents. And one of the bigger ones we had was a plot to attack JFK airport and a pipeline. And the case agents, if you will, on that were one FBI agent, one NYPD detective, and one Brooklyn district attorney office investigator. And that's what I loved about it. You know, some, uh, some FBI leaders wouldn't be comfortable with that, but that's the way we did it in New York. So on another squad, for example, that did work around uh, Iran, that counterterrorism piece of Iran, not counterintelligence, you know, we had an IRS agent with somebody from New York State Police. So it was, it was great, in my opinion, because you got the knowledge that each brought to the table. You got the, the legal resources, if you will, and the ability to use all of the legal authorities that we had in our respective agencies to get the job done. And I thought it was magnificent. I I love that kind of environment. And to me, I would much prefer in whatever I do to have a mixture of people from all different components, whether it's in law enforcement or not in law enforcement, because 
you avoid groupthink, you bring a different perspective to everything that you're looking at. And in any job that we do, you're always going to be far more effective and, and far better for that diversity. There are two things left that I want to talk to you about when you join the FBI and why you join the FBI. And then I have got to get in what you're doing now when it comes to, you know, women and leadership, because that's when I talk about stalking you, that's mm-hmm. where I really stalk you. <laughs> when I'm looking at the, the trips that you're making and the things that you're doing, uh, I'm just absolutely so fascinated with those public service programs that you're involved in. So, but first, When did you join the FBI and why did you join the FBI? I went to college as a pre-med biology major. I wanted to be a doctor. So I often refer to that as my first failure in life. And it's true. You know, some people say, don't call it a failure. And they said, well, yeah, it's the first time I planned to do something and I didn't do it. I was unhappy with that work. And so I made the decision to switch majors. And as I was finishing up college and, you know, beginning to look about going out in the real world. I was considering a lot of different things. I had had an internship with the district attorney's office in Allentown, but then I also did work with severely mentally handicapped children. And as I was getting out, the same time period is when Ted Bundy is really active doing all of his killing around the country. And I became absolutely fascinated by all of that, read everything I could get my hand on. It was the nascent stages of the behavioral science unit in Quantico. And I knew I wanted to do international work. So I was thinking of the FBI, I was thinking of the CIA, uh, State Department, briefly considered NYPD, but I had, no one in my family had been in the FBI. But I just, the more I read, the more I thought, God, this, this would be really, really cool. And I didn't know where to begin. You know, there was no internet. I didn't know anybody. And the job that I had right out of college was with a corporate insurance broker. It was a job, work that needs to be done, but um, not my cup of tea. And they hired a woman as an admin assistant. And some of the people knew I had an interest in the FBI. And they said, hey, we hired this woman. She's going to be so-and-so's admin assistant. And she came from the FBI. And I was like, whoa, Really? And I can remember what I was wearing and I went running down the hallway to meet this woman. And I said, I really am interested in the FBI. And she said, they're actually hiring more women now that Judge Webster's become the director. And she said, would you like to meet a woman agent in the New York office? And I was like, oh, absolutely. And so she introduced me to Sue Manser, who I think the world of, she's retired. She's out in Colorado now. She was, for a time, was head of Homeland Security for uh, the state of Colorado. And it just went from there. But, you know, looking back now, reflecting back, I see that there were so many signs there when I was a kid. And this is something I share with a lot of young people that I mentor, both in college and high school and shortly out of college, is, you know, pay attention to the things you're interested in as a kid. Because the books I like to read, the movies I like to, and TV shows that I wanted to watch, and just everything out there in the world was all pointing in this kind of direction and the signs were all there and it just took me a while to read the signs. But I'll share one anecdote with you from when I was 11 that I love to share with people. Our family went to Washington DC. We were living in New Jersey at the time and doing all the tours that all families do. But for me, I couldn't wait to go to the FBI and have that tour. And Hoover is still alive. I'm 11. It's in the Department of Justice and we're getting the tour of the laboratory, which was then there. And firearms. And I just was fascinated by all of it. And I raised my hand and I said to the tour guide, can girls be FBI agents? And he looked down at me and he said, no. And I looked up at him and said, why not? 
And he looked down at me and he said, girls would spend all their time painting their nails. Boom. Oh my <laughs> God. So, so crushing. But guess what? I had parents who told me I could do anything, which is why I went right back with the why not. But what I share with people is, you know, I grew up in an environment where I was told I could do anything. I could be anything. And my dad always used to say, be the boss, which my brothers thought I took to an extreme. It was really <laughs> the first time where the real world intruded in that. And somebody said to me, you can't do that. And I'm the kind of person that you tell me I can't do something. Mm -mm. Step back and just watch. And so when I got my appointment letter to the FBI in December of 1983, the first person I thought of was not my mom and my dad, but the tour guide. Where's the tour guide? Now, let me just show him this letter. Wow. So that's how I got in. Loved it. Loved virtually every minute of the uh, the career that I had. And I'm very grateful to have had the experiences, met the extraordinary people I've had, be a part of making things better around the world. That matters greatly to me because the impact that we have as FBI employees, not just the agents, but the analysts, the laboratory folks, everybody, you know, it's a privilege to have that job and to serve our country. And I believe that, you know, in the deepest core of, of who I am and, you know, that feeling largely informed what I chose to do when I left the FBI. The things that you have been doing, again, because I'm stalking you on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> Look, looking at your photos and, and all. Tell everyone about that because it's really remarkable. Thank you for asking. And I would say that my time overseas and then a, a wonderful leadership program I was in uh, with the International Women's Forum positioned me to have a front row seat to the status of women and young people around the world. And as I was leaving the FBI, I put a lot of energy into thinking about what I wanted to do, and what I didn't want to do. I mean, literally over the course of several years, which is something we should all do when we don't. And I initially thought about the corporate route. And I thought, well, that's great because all the experiences I've had, I could make a lot of money. And then I thought, uh, no, that really doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is doing something that has an impact that changes things for the positive, and that makes a real difference. And it sounds corny to some people, but that's what drives me. Money doesn't drive me, it never has. I was very fortunate to have a mentor outside the FBI, a woman named Jenna Dorn, who I think the world of, she's in DC. And as I was transitioning, I used this, this year in this sabbatical program to sort out what I wanted to do. And she introduced me to another woman named Susan Davis, who at the time was the chair of the board of an organization called Vital Voices based in Washington, D.C. Vital Voices does incredible work. It is a nonpartisan organization, non-governmental, and they started working with women leaders in other parts of the world who needed a boost, who would benefit from the expertise of women who were successful in their field, whatever that was, who would benefit from having access to financial experts if they were entrepreneurs about how to do a business plan, you know, really how to create change for themselves um, in their professional lives and in their personal lives, because the majority of the women that Vital Voices works with and has worked with are in parts of the world where women are largely regarded as second-class citizens, if that, where they don't have access to the same things that men do, where the laws actively work against them, whether it's property rights, opening bank accounts, anything like that. And so that focus has been in that way. And Vital Voices partners up with several other organizations. They have an economic empowerment program. They have a human rights program. 
And with some of the partners, they then work with these women. And they range in age from their 20s really into their 50s. And so I went through an interview process and was selected to become a global ambassador for them in a program that's underwritten by the Bank of America. And in that capacity, it's a big title, global ambassador, but essentially I'm a mentor. And the first Middle East program that they ran was less than a year after I left the FBI. It was November of 2013. And I knew I had been selected to be a global ambassador. And they were talking about putting me in a program the following year. And I said, well, I understand you have a program for the Middle East and North Africa coming up. And they said, yes. And, you know, we somebody dropped out, but I don't know if it, they said to me, we don't know if it's enough time for you to get it together. And I'm like, oh, yes, I can get it together quickly. And it was in Doha, in Qatar. And so that was my first official beginnings. And I was paired up with an Egyptian entrepreneur, Dahlia Safan, who I absolutely adore. And just like theirs, in many instances, you know, that FBI thing can be a real, can be buzzkill sometimes, to be truthful. And we had women from the Middle East and North Africa. So they inherently were going to distrust me. So I headed it off at the pass. And the beauty of what Vital Voices does is they don't, like, unlike a lot of other programs, they don't match you up profession to profession. They match you up based on what the needs are of the woman and what your skills are. You know, so for me, working in an international environment, working in a very male oriented field, they have great organizational skills, great strategic planning. So the women they have paired me up with over time have had those needs. So I've also been incorporated into some of the other programs they had. Another one is with the State Department and Fortune's Most Powerful Women. And I've done leadership speaking and mentorship with them. And then they have another program working with women who are really starting out more called VV Grow. And I have worked with women in that program as well. So I'm currently through Vital Voices alone working with women in Egypt, Somalia, India, the Philippines, Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon, oh, and Nepal. And I've had the opportunity to travel to these countries through Vital Voices. I've also worked with an organization called Girls 20, which is a nonprofit based in Canada, which takes young women between 18 and 23, who represent, who selected highly competitive process to represent their country as a delegate. And the Girls 20 meets in the wings of the G20 every year, and it's leadership and other training. And then they write a communique, which is presented to the president of the G20. And the G20 makes a commitment to try and incorporate some of their recommendations, which all have to do with getting more labor force participation by women globally. So those are just two examples, but really what my focus is, is, you know, how can I share what I know to lift up other women and young people? And a lot of my focus is not just in the economic side, but it's also on preventing conflict because that matters. Making things safer for women and young people matters a great deal to me. And, you know, to that end, I was also selected as a judge for the XPRIZE Foundation. They had a women's safety XPRIZE competition to come up with a device that would make women safer, that would send an alert out. There's a lot more we can send links to that, so I won't waste time on that. But it was an extraordinary um, opportunity to judge all of these entries from around the world and then to test them real time in Mumbai, India last year. Um, the winner got $1 million 
as a prize to work towards creating wow. that. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, huge. And and then I've worked on a film called The Uncondemned, which is a documentary that told the story of the first time that rape was prosecuted as a war crime, and it was the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. And I served on the advisory board for Michelle Mitchell, the filmmaker for that. So that's all sexual violence and conflict related. So in the content of, context of being on her advisory board, I've done a lot of panels and a lot of talkbacks after screening of the film talking about my experiences and and with people who have been victims of sexual violence and conflict and the work that I've done around the world and sharing a perspective that comes from the, you know, law enforcement governmental sides and where I see that things work and where they don't work. And Michelle's working on a follow-on film called The Conversations, which will be working with men and women who are survivors of sexual violence and conflict. So, and I'm also, there's an organization called Safe City in India, which was the first platform where people could report instances of everything from sexual harassment up to sexual violence in public spaces in India. And that is now going global. So as you see, a lot of different things going on, but it's really all focused on trying to prevent conflict and make things safer because we can do all we want to help countries come out of conflict and build businesses, encourage entrepreneurship. But at its root, if people don't feel safe in their homes, if people don't feel safe going to school or going to work, then the rest of it doesn't matter. So that is largely what my focus has been on. And also with young people is how can we create an environment where people feel safer and they are safer and that will allow those societies and those countries to thrive. Well, you definitely have the experience and the knowledge to be an asset in that effort. I like to give my guests the last word so I can (laughs) make sure that we've covered everything that they want to cover. So the last word is yours. Well, I guess what I want to say is thank you, Jerry. Thank you for the opportunity to share some of the remarkable experiences that I have had over the course of my adult life and my career in the FBI, the exceptional people that I worked alongside with around the world, certainly in the FBI, but around the world. I'm grateful for that. And I want people to know that beyond the work that we do in the FBI, there is so much more that we have that we can give. And I literally would like to you know, throw down a challenge to my fellow retired and former agents and agents who are still working and say, don't just slide out that door into a corporate job because it's the easy thing to do or that's what everybody does. Take the time and think about it because we have an impact when we work for the FBI and we can continue to have a huge impact and take what we know and what we've done and make things better all over. That includes in the United States, where I do a lot of work with young people too, and around the world. And I just say, take that positive impact and and put it into something else. But I tell you, the people that I meet, the young people that I meet, the women that I meet all around the world, there's so much good out there and there's so much joy. And, you know, I'm going to keep doing that until I fall over because that's what I love. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Lauren Anderson. There are lots of articles about the Casablanca bombings. I would really encourage you to read the article about the conditions and unemployment that causes young Moroccan men to become radicalized. It's really interesting. 
If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction or crime drama recommendation for you. I am working on the revisions of my next book. Soon you will be able to pick up a copy of FBI in Film and Fiction, a manual for armchair detectives, which will be coming soon to all stores where books are sold. It's a 50,000 word expanded version of my popular FBI reality checklist. And if you enjoy reading police procedurals, I hope you'll also consider picking up copies of the crime novels in my FBI Corruption Squad series. Pay to play and greedy givers. The crime fiction series features special agent Carrie Wheeler, Temptation, Corruption, and Redemption. The books are available as ebooks and paperbacks at Amazon.com and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. I want to thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.